What's up, poker people? Let's level up your game. My name is Mike Brady, and I'm joined by a special guest today. Dylan Weissman is a high-stakes pro and upswing poker coach who specializes in Pot Limit Omaha. He crushes four-card cash games and has racked up nearly $2 million in live tournament earnings. That's highlighted by a WSOP bracelet victory in a 1K buy-in PLO event and a $416,000 win in the 25K buy-in PLO event at the U.S. Poker Open. Thanks for joining us, Dylan. Super happy to be here. I am always stoked to spread the gospel of the great game to the people, especially now as we've seen so much PLO content coming out into the into the ecosystem. It's great to get to give some information on it. Yeah, sounds good. And as you'd expect, listeners, the topic on the table today is Pot Limit Omaha. We're going to give you a high-level overview of how to play a winning strategy in this great game. We'll start with general preflop strategies that will set you up for postflop success. From there, we'll move on to Dylan's tips and tactics for playing postflop. So, Dylan, clearly we have to start with preflop strategy. A common mistake new PLO players make is overvaluing hands, because so many good-seeming hands are actually quite trashy in practice. In your PLO Launchpad course, which is meant for people wanting to get started in PLO, you talk about the four components to look out for when deciding whether or not a hand is worth playing. What are those four components? It's a great question. So the four things that I'm always looking at in a PLO hand are the nuttiness of the hand. So how likely is the hand to be the nuts by the river? The connectedness of the hand, which means how close are the cards? Do the cards talk to each other? The suitedness of the hand, which is straightforward, does the hand have one or two suits, as well as high pair power. And the way that we think about preflop and pot limit Omaha, generally speaking, is that we want to stack equity. The more of these characteristics an individual hand has, the higher likelihood it is to have equity against your opponent's range. For example, a hand like ace-ace-7-8 double suited. It has nuttiness, it has connectedness, it has suitedness, and it has high pair power. And so all four of those characteristics show up in that one specific combination, which is why it is one of our absolute premiums. Yeah, and Dylan used a phrase there that he likes to use. I actually really like when he says it, but it's cards talking to each other. Just to quickly describe that, a seven and a jack talk to each other, but a six and a jack don't, because a seven and a jack can make a straight, a six and a jack cannot. Hopefully that's clear. I just want to make sure everyone is on the same page. So regarding those preflop components, is there a hierarchy? When it comes to them. In other words, is one component particularly important? That is really contextual. And so it depends where you find yourself in the range of Pot Limit Omaha ecosystems. If you're in a tournament and you have 20 big blinds left, the high cardness and the high pairs are going to be worth the most. And the same thing in, in No Limit Hold'em, right? If you have 910 suited off of 20 bigs, it's not really worth much in a tournament. Whereas a hand like King 10 offsuit is way more powerful in that environment. Same thing in PLO. If you have like bad kings, rainbow kings, for example, that is a monster at 20 big blinds, but not that great off of 100. Whereas if we're playing 100 big blinds online, we care a lot about the connectedness and the nuttiness of our hand, generally speaking, because we're more than likely going to have to take the hand to the river, especially if we open up the hand from early position and we're playing against one or two ranges. So we need to make sure that our hand will connect enough with the board to be able to take bluffs on future streets or find lots of bets. And then the last thing, let's say we're in an uber deep stacked cash game live, right? Now we care the most about nuttiness because most likely we're going to go four or five ways. I'm sure if you're a live PLO player and you play one three at your local casino, every flop is six handed. And so you want to have hands that can flop the nuts. You want to have your ace high suits. You want to have your high pay, like a hand like queen, queen, 10, seven single suit is actually great because it can flop top set, right? 
And so depending on your environment is how we need to rank these character traits of our hands. And it's relatively logical depending on the environment that you're in. Yeah, and it makes a lot of sense that you were talking about kind of the deeper stack play requiring less of the high pair and like high card power. You know, I'm sure you don't mind the high pairs and the high cards when you're, you know, deep stack, but it's especially important to have a hand that's going to make robust hands post-flop, right? I know you really like to use that word when talking about PLO, and that's to say it's a hand that not only has a set, not only has a straight draw, it also has a flush draw. That would be a super robust hand, right? Or a straight that also has a flush draw. That's a relatively robust straight compared to a straight that doesn't really have anything going with it. And if you're a Nolamit Hold'em player, this is going to be new stuff to you. Because when you only have two cards, it's hard to have a lot of different things. Maybe you can have a set and a flush draw on the turn once in a while. Very rare, though. But in PLO, it becomes really important what the other things you have going on are. So you might have flopped a set, but is it a naked set? Do you have anything else going on? Do you have some escape hatches in case some sort of straight completes on the turn? Stuff like that. Exactly correct. And this is uh, the phrase robust equity coined by Chris Wainer, the main author of the Advanced Pillow Mastery course, who's an absolute savage, one of the greats of Potlum and Omaha Cash Games Online. The other thing to think about robustness, and I think a more intuitive way is, is my hand most likely to be the best hand by the river? Because in Hold'em, when the board texture changes, we don't care that much. It's not often that they're always going to have a flush draw or a straight draw. And so our top pair, top kicker is really solid. But in PLO, because the board texture changes so often, you need to have that backup. Additionally, a hand like top set is more robust than a hand like bottom set. Because top set, if the board pairs, is always going to have top vote. Whereas if the board pairs and you have bottom set, if your opponent had top two pair on the flop, now you're actually not guaranteed to win the hand. And so robustness is not just in the backup that you have, but also the immediate equity that your hand shows relative to the combinations that your opponent will continue with. Yeah, that makes sense. So kind of dialing it back to preflop there, like any other poker game, position is obviously going to matter quite a bit. Let's demonstrate that with an example, and let's make it kind of an easy situation to understand, like raising first in. So suppose you're under the gun in a six max game. What are some of the worst hands you'll be raising in that situation? And I know you like to break things down by hand class, so feel free to do that however you see fit. Totally. Let's even talk about hand class versus position in PLO, because I think it's a great place to start. In if you're a Hold'em player, we're always used to, what's my UTG range? What's my button range? In PLO, when you have hundreds of thousands of combinations, it might not be intuitive to learn your preflop ranges by position, and you'd rather learn them by hand class. So which of my pocket kings do I raise from under the gun? Which of my pocket kings do I raise from the button? And by thinking about them in terms of hand class, it becomes more intuitive to build your preflop overall structure. For the sake of this podcast, we can do it by position because I think it's what people are more used to. The the basics, let's say that we're UTG six, right? So six-handed, under the gun, online cash game, medium rake. And remember, rake is super important when thinking about your preflop ranges. From that position, I'd probably raise king, king, five, four, single suit. A hand like three, four, five, six, double suited is even going to get in there, but only the double suited variant, and there has to be no gaps. The earlier the position that you're in, the more your rundowns have to be smooth, as we say. There have to be no gaps in them. And the reason why that's true is because if you're playing against multiple people, you want your straight draws to be to the nuts, generally speaking. You don't want there to be a gap in your straight draw. Or if you flop two pair, you want to flop two pair and a straight draw with it. And that's always guaranteed when you have a smooth hand. Another example would be a hand like ace-10-9-8 single suit, even to the 10, because the 10-9-8 is so strong. 
However, you would not play ace and nine six, for example, because you need that smoothness from the early position. Right. That makes sense. Really interesting to hear you say that you break it down by hand class like that. I'm sure that's a huge rabbit hole that our listeners could go down if they want. They could check out the PLO Matrix. They could check out PLO Launchpad or Advanced PLO Mastery on Upswing to kind of get the hang of that a little bit. But it's a, it's a huge rabbit hole, a little bit outside the scope of our podcast today. So we'll move on. But you know, y'all can go down that rabbit hole yourself should you want to. So 100%. for comparison, you just talked about those under the gun hands. You said King King 5-4 suited 3-4-5-6, double suited Ace-10-9-8, single suited. So that was under the gun. Some of the worst hands you would play from under the gun at a six-handed table. But now let's move over to the button. So we're going from kind of the, the tightest position to the loosest. How much would you open up that range? What are some of the worst hands you'd raise first in on the button? The answer is a whole bunch, right? You're going from 18 to 45% BPIP about in terms of your opening range. And so you're getting in there with like ace-eight-five deuce nutsuit. King Jack 10-6 rainbow. Jack 10-7-6 seven high suit. Combinations that don't need to be that powerful because you're not likely to play against multiple opponents. From the earlier position, if we go back to thinking what like the suitedness and the nuttiness and things like that, the earlier you open, the more likely it is to be multi-way. And so your hand has to stack more equities. Whereas from the button, you're very likely to just play heads up. And so you care more about having combinations that can take aggression on future streets, like that ace high suit, like King Jack 10-6. King Jack 10 has lots of bluffing properties and it blocks your opponent's three betting range, right? So that's what we're thinking more about from the later position. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Those are some pretty trashy hands, I, I will say. Ace, Ace A5-2, King Jack 10-6 is not looking that great, but I get what you're saying from the button, maybe from the cutoff in some cases, they can get in there. What I will also say is that there's a lot that goes into choosing those trashy hands, right? And it's not necessarily something you'd see on first glance, but a trained PLO player is really going to pick up on it. For example, King Jack 10, 6, Rainbow. King Jack 10 is very strong, especially if your opponent does not three bet you, right? And so even though it's a rainbow combination, your probability of straight over straighting somebody or two pair over two pairing someone is not trivial. And so that hand plays pretty well against a pure calling range. And obviously, if they three bet, it's a very easy fold. Same thing with the ace eight five two nut suit. You're guaranteed to have the nut suit post flop, and it blocks your opponent's three betting range. Right? If you have an ace in your hand, they're less likely to have aces. And so the modern PLO player is always aware of whether or not their hand adds equity, like if it just has good equity, or if it removes equity from your opponent's range. Right? Having four cards is so powerful. So if you have an ace in your hand, unlikely to get three bet. If you have a king, a jack, and a ten, those are all cards that your opponent doesn't have. And so our jobs as good PLO players is to really play with that push and that pull. How much equity does our hand have and how much does it remove from our opponent? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So before we move on to post-flop, do you have any other key pre-flop tips for our listeners? In multi-way scenarios, you really want to shy away from combinations that look okay, but actually are going to be dominated really frequently. And this is for our players that are playing low stakes online games, or low stakes live games, a hand like King Jack 7 8 Jack High Suit. If there's an under the gun raise and we're on the cutoff, for example, a lot of people are just going to play it because it looks kind of connected. But against a strong range, it's dominated everywhere. The straights are going to be dominated. The Jack High Flush is going to be dominated. So those are really combinations you want to avoid in situations where it's more likely to go multi ways. Another really cool tip for three betting is that 
our main three and even four bidding combinations are double suited. The reason why this is true is because two suits play really well against one person, and they don't play as well against two people. Additionally, if you're double suited, you can almost always call a four bet, unless you have a very specific candidate, because you're always going to be able to have enough equity going to the flop. And so for people that are maybe struggling to find three bet bluffs or even four bet bluffs pre-flop, those double suited combinations, specifically double suited combinations with an ace in them are really powerful to up your aggression factor. All right. One last thing before we move on to post-flop. I think we got to talk about pocket aces. In Nolamit Hold'em, it's the dream scenario. It's the angelic hymn as you look down at the aces, looking around at your opponent's stack, counting how much you can potentially win, right? Looking for those flops that are safe, trying to rifle in money. But in Potlamit Omaha, it's not like that at all. Not all aces are created equal. And a single pair of aces doesn't hold up, quote-unquote, that often after the flop. So obviously, there's going to be a bunch of subtleties regarding playing pocket aces. You even have a video in the PLL Launchpad course all about playing pocket aces because it's something that people ask about so often. But I know people listening right now are going to be interested in that topic as well. So can you speak to pocket aces in PLO? Totally. The first thing, as you mentioned, is not all aces are created equal, both in terms of the stacked up that we have and the position at the table and what other characteristics those aces have a part of their hand. So a hand like ace-ace-seven-deuce, I'd put in a different hand class than a hand like ace-ace-nine-ten double suited because they play so differently post-flop. With that being said, a couple really easy things to think about. One thing that's really easy to navigate with pocket aces, let's say that you're playing a cash game and you're anywhere less than 150 big blinds. You open the cutoff, the button three bets you, you're the out-of-position player, and that's the key to this. If you're out of position, you always four bet your pocket aces because you want to get rid of that positional disadvantage, right? And it also makes it relatively easy to play flops. You just get to click pot a lot of the time, slightly deeper, maybe there's some nuance. The other thing to think about with pocket aces is you don't want to just be potting the flop generally. And that's what a lot of players do and where they get themselves in trouble. Like they three bet aces pre, somebody calls them, the flop comes king, jack, seven with a flush draw, and you have ace, ace, 10, deuce without a flush draw. And you just click pot. And that's not great in PLO because you have to really think through what your opponent's range is if they're calling your three bet. And a board like King Jack 7 is going to smack them in the face. And so your job is to not play with fear with your pocket aces. It's to logically think through the hands that your opponent can have and then decide whether or not your aces have enough equity or your opponent's range is not strong enough to be able to continue on specific board textures, specifically when you play those three bets. Yeah, it's interesting to hear you say not to play without fear with aces, and you're actually saying that the fearful play is just to pot it, right? And that might seem counterintuitive, but it does make sense because I have noticed that about people playing pocket aces in PLO, or even in Nolman Hold'em, there's some stuff like this, but we'll keep it in the PLO realm. They'll have pocket aces, maybe they three bet or opened pre-flop, they get to the flop, and they just pot it. And that's because they're afraid of having to make tough decisions. They're afraid of having to really think through the spot they're afraid to check and face a bet. What am I going to do? They're afraid to, you know, bet small and face a raise. What am I going to do? They just want to pot it, stop thinking, and move on. But that's obviously not the highest EV play. That's not going to be the thing that makes you the most money. You got to think about the spot logically. Figure out where your aces fit in your range, how good their equity is, and then make a good decision. 100%. And I actually think that this is a perfect transition point into navigating post-flop. Because one of, if not the biggest leak that I see in newer or even middling to high stakes PLO players, this shows up all the time, is 
people want to quote unquote protect the equity of their hand. And it's a very common theme because equities always run so close. And so you're trying to use aggression to get your opponent to fold. The issue with this is that you could never protect your equity in PLO. The board texture is almost always going to change. And so your job is not to play in such a way where you're forcing in a bunch of money with medium strength hands, because that actually is what it looks like, right? Those pocket aces on those kind of connected boards, the low straights on straightening boards, right? These hands that are very vulnerable that you think you just want to get your opponents to fold, they're the ones you actually should be playing passively. You should be checking back with. And then that's how you find your delay C-bet value hands, right? You check back those lower straights and then value bet them on the turn when the board texture doesn't change, right? Not only does it make your overall game stronger, but it makes it so that you're less likely to get coolered. And that is what PLO is. It's a game of coolering people, right? You have four cards, really easy to make a good hand. And so if you're making your decisions based off of fear and trying to get your opponents to fold, almost always that's not going to be the right play. With that being said, Obviously, it can be in some situations. Yeah, makes sense. It, it really reminds me when you say like the low straight, it's kind of like the check back, delay C bet for value, maybe call a bet, that kind of thing. Reminds me of like a middle pair in Nolamit Hold'em. You know, you have like a fairly invulnerable middle pair, say like an ace jack or queen jack on like a king jack two board. That's often a hand that you you kind of check back, kind of steer it to showdown, but maybe put in a bet on a later street. Like it, it sounds very similar to like aces on certain boards or like a low straight in PLO. But all That's right, exactly right. Let's get into general post flop. We could probably make a 10 hour podcast about this topic. It's very vast, but we're on a time crunch here. So I'm going to ask you to do something quite tough. Can you share five tips for playing post flop and PLO that will give players a solid place to start? Totally. The first one we just talked about, which is looking at how robust the equity of your hand is, and then having that decide whether or not you take aggression with it, right? So middle sets, bottom sets, bottom straights, those combinations. On some boards, they're going to get to take aggression, and on some, they have to check back. And so your job is to, as we said, not play with fear and really think about whether or not your hand is likely to be the nuts on the river, and then have that dictate whether or not you take aggression with it on the earlier streets. Does that even apply to, like, for example, a really nutted hand or even the nuts on the flop, but one without any robust equity? Like, for yes. example, maybe like a. Maybe you have like six, seven, something, something, and the board is three, four, five, but you have nothing else going on, or maybe there's a better example. Yeah, the the six, seven one is usually one you'll take aggression because you don't have a lot of nuts on those three, four, five boards. But let's say that we have a hand like Queen Jack 10, 9, and the board is 10, 9, 8. This one might seem like a slam dunk bet because you have the redraw, but you actually get to mix it sometimes because you block the hands your opponent will continue with because you block top two pair. And so that's a really nice way to check back and like find raises on the turn. Or if you have a hand like Queen Jack Deuce 3, as you described, right? Pure nuts, no backdoor equity on that 8, 9, 10 board. That's another one that we can check back. But if we have a hand like King Queen Jack 10, where you have a wrap as backup, or Queen Jack with a flush draw, right? Those are the ones that are going to take bets because you can free will your opponent. This is on the flop and on the turn as well. A lot of the times on the turn, we play check call with the nuts that don't have a redraw. And then that's where our check raises on the river come from, is from that specific hand class. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it kind of goes back to what we were talking about with robust equity. And it's kind of just logical, right? If you have one of those PLO hands that you look down and you're like, holy crap, I can't believe I have this much connectivity with the board. I have a straight and a flush draw. I have a straight and a redraw to a better straight or whatever it is. 
Those are the hands you want to rifle money in the pot with. You bet big, you bet aggressively. Well, not always big, I guess, but you bet aggressively and you try to get some money in there. Whereas when you don't have as much of that robust equity, you maybe err towards checking kind of depending on your hand. Exactly correct. All right, cool. Tip number two. Yeah, let's back it up into something more basic, which is just C-bet sizings on different boards. PLO, a lot of people, they just bet big, no matter what the board is, because they want people to fold. But what we need to think about when we're deciding our bet sizing is not our specific hand and what it wants to do, but what our range wants to do on different board textures. Let's take a very basic example, where we're on the button, we open 100 big blinds online cash game, the big blind calls, we're in a medium rake environment. The flop comes queen, 10, 7 with a flush draw. That's a dynamic unpaired board. And when I say those words, it's very easy to see. It's dynamic because there's all the flush draws, the straight draws, and things like that. Unpaired, relatively straightforward. So on that board, we're going to use about two-thirds as our C-bet sizing. Same thing on the dry unpaired boards, like 10, 5, 3, rainbow, right? Very different in PLO because overpairs are more powerful on the dry unpaired boards than on the dynamic unpaired boards. So on some of those, you'll get B67. On some of them, you'll get a half pot sizing. And then one thing that a lot of people mess up actually is your straight boards. On your straight boards, you actually bet half pot. You just check back bar. And the frequency at which you bet is dependent on which part of range better interacts with each player. So for example, if it's a high straight board, the initial raiser is going to get more C-bets because they have more high cards. If it's a medium straight board, the initial raiser is going to get less bets because it's more likely to interact with the passive range, right? And then that's about a half pot sizing. The last two boards that we cover are pair and flush boards. Those are generally bet 33 with a little bit of nuance. Yeah. And for those who don't know, when you say bet and then a number or B and then a number, that's the percent of pot. So B33 would be bet 33% of the pot. Some poker nerd shit. Thank you for bringing that to the podcast today, Dylan. Easy game. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Yeah, so I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Like you're, you talked about like the 10.53, the queen 10.7, those get the quote unquote big size of 67% pot. It makes sense. A lot of stuff can change on that board. It's just like No Limit Hold'em. When you get these boards that they don't necessarily have like a clear nuts yet. It's not like there's a straight possible yet, but a lot of turns would complete a straight draw or a lot of turns are an overcard or whatever it is. You tend to bet a little bigger, you go 67% pot. And then on those more locked down boards, as PLO players call them, ones that are paired, ones that have a lot of straights possible, ones that have three of the same suit, you go a little smaller, as small as 33% of the pot sometimes. Exactly right. Moving on to our third post-flop tip. And this is one that a lot of Hold'em players will really benefit from. And it's this idea, let's go back to the same environment where let's say we're on the cutoff, 100 big blinds, online cash game. We open, and then the button calls, everyone else folds. The flop comes literally any board texture that's not ace high. Queen 10-7, 5-6-7, flushing boards, straighting boards, pretty much any board that's not ace high, you play check. And the reason why is that in PLO, equities run so close, which means that On any board texture that doesn't have an ace on it, the reason being that your opponent didn't three bet preflop, therefore they don't have ace-ace, right? So the ace-high boards are really good for the initial raiser. So on any board that's not ace-high, equities are relatively competitive. And when I say competitive equities in GTO land, pretty much just what it means is that of all the cards that both players can have, it's a fair fight. And when it's a fair fight, position is king. Therefore, 
when you're in this out of position scenario and you have competitive equities, the really intuitive strategy and the easiest strategy to execute on is to just check your range and then learn how to build a sufficient check raising range on the majority of board textures. But this is going to get a lot of people out of trouble in PLO, right? They just bet out of position, they use a big sizing, and then their opponent continues, and then the board texture changes. Now what, right? It's so hard to navigate. Now you've bloated the pot, a lot of cards exactly. are going to be bad for your range. Yeah, it, it really reminds me of playing, often does, it reminds me of playing out of position in Nolamut Hold'em, right? On a lot of boards, when you raise and someone calls in position, you have to play a very defensive, passive strategy, at least to start. We do yes. start to get pretty gangster with our check raising strategy and stuff like that. But at first, you know, dealer fans the three cards and we're first to act out of position against a guy who called our race preflop. We are going to be doing a lot of checking. And you're saying just check your entire range unless it's an ace high board. Very easy to remember. Makes a lot of sense. I think our listeners can definitely implement that. Agree. Then your listener's job is to find the right check raises. Yeah, That's let's talk about step. that just a little bit. Small amount. Yeah, smidge. Yeah. Super smidge. Robust hands. Easy game. Your most robust combinations, the ones that are the nut flush draws, the top two pairs, the top sets, the nut straight draws, those are your check raises. Yeah, that makes sense. And because you checked your full range, you have all of those hands. So yeah. pretty easy to decide when you have one of those hands that we've been talking about throughout this entire episode that you want to be rifling in money when you have a lot of different stuff going on. Straight draws, flush draws, straights, sets all at the same time. Somehow, that's when exactly. you want to be putting in that check raise. Exactly right. Four cards, lots of possibilities. All right. Next, very easy turn betting strategy. Because we've talked a lot about preflop. We've talked about the flop. Very basic. And this is, I think, going to be similar to Hold'em as well. If we've C-bet the flop, and then the board texture has not changed, our sizing on the turn is going to be the full pot. And that's because when our opponent doesn't check raise us on the flop, they now have all the middle of range, right? They have those middling combinations. And we bet the flop, which means that we either have kind of garbage or a really good hand. Because remember, our C-bet strategy is relatively polar in PLO because there's all those middling hands we want to play defensively with, right? And so when the board texture doesn't change, we size up all the way. And this is a very consistent poker principle, is if your opponent has a capped range and they're more middle of the range heavy, and you have an uncapped range and you're more polar, right? You either have garbage or the nuts. Your job is to bet as big as possible, which in the game of PLO is the pot. And let me tell you, if you haven't just started saying the word pot really loudly, it's super fun. I highly recommend it. Most of you have, but it's one of the great joys we have in the great game. <laughs> yeah, you don't get to do that in Ultimate Hold'em. They don't count the pot for you. <laughs> they, they do. And it's, it's so funny seeing a PLO player play a Hold'em tournament because they have to stop being lazy a lot of the time. They're either really good at calculating the size of the pot or they become dependent on the dealer to do it. And it's super fun. Yeah, that is pretty funny. So our fifth and final tip that I want to go over just has to do with basic multi-way strategy. A lot of you are playing lower stakes and you're just going to go to a six-way flop, right? In general, when you're trying to think about a sizing to use, multi-ways, there's two things you have to think about. The first is, do you have a polarity advantage? And against 20 other cards, if you're six ways, the answer is hell no, right? And so you always have to use these smaller sizings and multi-ways. And we can use that same principle that we talked about in our earlier tip, where if you're not in position, you're also going to be checking almost all the time, unless it's an A-side board and you're the pre-flop raiser, right? And so the easiest thing to think about when playing multi-ways, especially live, is that if you're not in position, you should just check a lot. And then when you do end up betting, it's anywhere from 25% of the pot to 50% of the pot. 
And that depends on the dynamicism of the board, similarly to how we described in our earlier example. Yeah, and I really don't blame people for betting too big in multi-way pots because it feels like you have to protect, you know, you flop top set of queens and there's three other people in there with God knows how many two-card hand combinations that are possible. You probably want to bet big, like, intuitively. That's what feels right, you know? But it's very similar to Null and Hold'em again, where the very nerd shit incoming, the burden of defense is split between multiple people. In other words, when you bet... All three of the other opponents, or four or whatever, they're all sharing how often they have to continue against your bet. Whereas if it's heads up, Dylan bets into me, I have to make sure I'm calling enough so Dylan doesn't exploit me with an aggressive betting strategy. But when I have three people behind me, I don't have to worry about combating Dylan's aggressive betting strategy alone. I essentially have help. I have three people behind me that I have to think about and factor in so I'm not calling too often. So you can just leverage that with a small bet size. They're still going to feel that pressure because it's a multi-way pot. It also allows you to bet a little more often, though that said, be careful with that because you don't want to be betting too often, just like Dylan alluded to. Exactly correct. And I'm going to add a little bit more nerd shit to this in that PLO, especially relative to Hold'em, has more uncapped check-raising ranges because you're supposed to just check a lot of rage in multi-way pots. And so the probability of it getting check-raised goes up. Therefore, your sizing actually has to be smaller for when you do get check-raised, right? You're not losing as much on your bluffs. And so it's a, it's a little bit of a dance between those two concepts. Yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. Well, this has been a lot, a lot of nerdy stuff today. Classic Pot Limit Omaha. It's hard to get into the PLO weeds without getting into some really, really complex stuff. Overall, great stuff, Dylan. I think everyone who's made it to this point now has a solid PLO foundation that they can take to the tables. If you want to take the next step towards becoming a strong, winning Pot Limit Omaha player, I highly recommend getting Dylan's course, the PLO Launchpad, on UpswingPoker.com. The PLO Launchpad is an introductory course that will help you become a winner at Pot Limit Omaha fast. You'll learn pre- and post-flop tactics used by top PLO players, and perhaps more importantly, discover how to exploit common player tendencies in low-stakes PLO games. Really money-making tactics you're going to learn in this course. As a listener of this podcast, you can get 25% off the PLO Launchpad with the coupon code PLO25. The course isn't expensive to begin with, so there's really no need to tank this one. Head over to UpswingPoker.com, go to the Training tab, and select the PLO Launchpad to get started. And remember to use the code PLO25 at checkout to get your discount. That's all for today. See you in the next one.